Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today, I would like to move away from the Hundred Years' War for a while and move to see events on the other side of the continent at approximately the same time. Specifically, the rise of Muscovy as a great power in northeast Russia. Welcome to a history of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Kulikova, Part 1 of 2. A quick search on the internet brings up several pages on the Battle of Kulikova. Much of it comes across as pretty dramatic. For example, just to give a flavour, on stsergius.org. Quote, the Kulikova Battle of 1380 is the most important event in the history of medieval Russia, an event which to a great extent shaped the destiny of the Russian nation. The battle on the Kulikova field marked the beginning of the separation of the north-west Russian states from the yoke of the Tatar Golden Horde. Another quote on Kulpol.ru Quote, the Kulikova battle turned out to be the largest fight of the Middle Ages. More than 100,000 warriors participated in it. The Golden Horde was thoroughly defeated. The Kulikova battle became the turning point in the struggle of Russia against the Tatar-Mongol yoke and influenced the formation of the United Russian State, the creation of the Russian national consciousness. End quote. In the History of Europe, Key Battles podcast, in the next two episodes I will do my best to give a balanced view of this key European battle and its significance. In a previous podcast, I described the first Mongol invasion of Eastern Europe, which culminated in the Battle of the Kalk River, 1223, in the region of modern-day eastern Ukraine. This heavy defeat of the combined Russian armies was not a decisive event by itself. Its importance was how it presaged the long-term Mongolian conquest that took place a few years later. Traditionally, the centre of power in the lands of the Rus was the city of Kiev, especially after the conversion of its prince, Vladimir the Great, in 988 to Orthodox Christianity. Over the next generations, however, real power dissipated throughout various Russian cities. The fortunes of various cities such as Chernigov, Smolensk, Sizdal, Rostov and Ryazan waxed and waned, according to the abilities of their princes, all of whom were members of the Rurikid dynasty. That is, they were descendants of Vladimir the Great. By the beginning of the 1200s, the most powerful Russian leader was the Grand Prince of Vladimir Suzdal, whose territory was situated around the region of modern-day Moscow, a settlement which was, at the time, only recently founded and not a significant centre of power. The lack of unity among the Russian princes meant that they had proved unable to provide a coordinated response to the Mongol threat. 
They had, of course, dealt with recurrent aggression from steppe populations before, but nothing had prepared them for their encounter with the Mongols. No attack from the steppe had ever approached the scale of the Mongol invasion of 1237 to 1240. In 1237, Batu, a grandson of Genghis Khan, undertook a large-scale campaign to extend the territory of the Mongolian Empire. His troops quickly conquered the Bulgar state on the Volga, before turning on the Russian principalities. The first city to be impacted by the Mongol onslaught was Ryazan. Chronicles recorded that the invaders, quote, burned this holy city with all its beauty and wealth, and churches of God were destroyed and much blood was spilled on the holy altars, and not one man remained alive in the city. All were dead, and there was not even anyone to mourn the dead, end quote. The Mongols next advanced northwards, crushing a relief army which had been sent by Grand Prince Yuri of Vladimir before destroying the small town of Moscow and then marching onwards to Vladimir, the capital city of Sudaria. After several days of bitter resistance, the Mongols destroyed any resistance that dared to stand in their way. Next, Batu's forces fanned out, causing further devastation at cities such as Tver and then Tojok. In 1239 and 1240, Mongol aggression focused on southern Russia, most dramatically in the autumn of 1240 when they besieged the city of Kiev. For ten weeks they bombarded the city walls before the defenders finally gave way. So many residents, in their panic, sought safety in the church of the Tive that its upper floors gave way under their combined weight. The citizens of Kiev surrendered finally on December 6, 1240. The Mongols then moved westward, forcing the southwestern Russian principalities of Galicia and Vilnius to submit, before pushing further into Poland and Hungary, whose forces they annihilated in two major battles, the Battle of Lignitz and Mohi, both in 1241. With Central Europe seemingly at the mercy of the steppe warriors, the Mongol armies were turned eastward for reasons which are debated by historians, but most commonly believed to be that Batu received news of the death of the great Khan, Ogedai. Whatever the reasons, the undefeated Mongols established themselves as the new rulers of the steppe lands north of the Black and Caspian Seas. On the lower Volga, Batu built his capital city of Sarai, from where he ruled a vast territory stretching from the Danube River in the west to Persia in the east, and from the peninsula of Crimea and the northern Caucasus in the south to lands of the Rus in the north. This became the area ruled over by a carnate named the Golden Horde, part of a greater Mongolian empire which stretched further east all the way to China and Korea. Robert O'Cromney, in his book The Formation of Muscovy, 1304-1613, writes that, quote, The Russian accounts of the conquest eloquently convey its devastating impact, both material and psychological. The Mongol invaders killed or imprisoned thousands of Russians and looted cities and towns. The poems lamenting the catastrophe express a mood of profound grief and paralysing helplessness of the savagery and overwhelming might of the conquerors. The conquest presented the princes of Russia with the dilemma of whether to continue to resist the Mongols or to accept their suzerainty as inevitable and make the best of a bad situation. One prince who chose to collaborate with the Mongols was Alexander Nevsky. 
Nevsky was the commander of an army which defeated the Teutonic Knights at the Battle of Lake Papers in 1242, as described in a previous podcast, available on Patreon.com. And later he became Grand Prince of Vladimir from 1252 to 1263. After the initial turbulent years of 1238 to 1242, life among Mongol rule settled down somewhat. The Khans did not try to replace the ruling elite of Russian society. The princes were allowed to keep their thrones as long as they met the few clear demands made on them. To recognise Mongol overlordship, the payment of taxes, and when required, the provision of military recruits. Part of the obligation was the demand to travel to visit the ruling Khan to swear loyalty. In the beginning, this meant a long trip to the central Mongolian capital of Karakurum, and later to the capital of the Golden Horde in Sarai. Mongol unity suffered from the 1260s in a series of civil wars between the empire's regional leaders. And from the early 1300s, the Golden Horde effectively became an independent power. From then on, historians use more the term Tatars instead of Mongols, although some use both words interchangeably. The Tatars, however, are correctly defined as members of a particular Turkic people, who are one of the five major tribal confederations in the Mongolian plateau, subjugated by Genghis Khan and his dynasty in the 1200s. When the Mongol armies advanced westward, they brought along with them large numbers of people belonging to non-Mongolian Central Asian tribes, including the Tatars. Over time, Russians and Europeans used the term Tatar to denote Mongols as well as Turkic peoples under Mongol rule, especially in the Golden Horde. Later, the term was applied to any Turkic or Mongolic-speaking people encountered by Russians. Although the Mongols were by tradition a nomadic people, they founded several new cities as they created their empire. These became important not only for administration, but for commerce. The Golden Horde's capital of Sarai was connected to the Mongolian Empire by the famous Silk Road, a caravan route that stretched as far as China. Along this pathway, merchants brought silks, spices, gems, ceramics and other oriental goods to the west. In Russia, during the first century of Mongol Tatar rule, the Khans appointed their own officials to enforce obedience to the Horde, collect taxes and maintain law and order. But as time passed, they increasingly left these roles to local Russian leaders. Paradoxically, the Mongol conquest strengthened some of the fundamental institutions of the Russian society, especially that of Grand Prince and the Orthodox Church. The Khans found it advantageous to support the ruling princes of Russia, as long as they remained loyal and to act as arbiters when rivalries among them grew out of control. In particular, they supported the claims of the Grand Princes of Vladimir to primacy among Russia's rulers. Likewise, the hierarchy of the Eastern Orthodox Church gained benefits from the new rulers. In general, Mongols were highly tolerant and respectful of local religions. In the case of Russia, they even seemed to actively support the Church, exempting it from taxation and military service and guaranteeing it undisturbed possession of its lands. In return, the Russian Church recognised Mongol overlordship by agreeing to offer prayers for the Khans. The ambiguous nature of Mongol rule is described by Robert O'Cromney, quote, Without doubt, the initial conquest was extremely destructive, and small, more localised raids from the steppes were in an unpleasant fact of Russian life, 
particularly in times of political discord within the Golden Horde itself. In 1298, Moscow and many other towns suffered devastation once again. At the same time, the Mongols, in effect, lent support to two institutions that served as rallying points and sources of cohesion within the Russian community, the Office of Grand Prince and the Eastern Orthodox Church. End quote. At the dawn of the 14th century, few would have foreseen the emergence of the powerful state in northeast Russia, and still fewer that Moscow would be its capital. The city of Vladimir was still at the time the residence of the Grand Prince, as well as the head of the Russian church, a refugee from a ruined Kiev. The city of Novgorod, far to the west, was the largest and most prosperous city in Russian lands, with a population of about 22,000. As an important centre of trade as well as artisanship, the tax revenues of Novgorod were highly sought after, not only for the wealth in its own right, but the political benefits. Without an effective army of its own, it had to rely for its protection on a prince and the troops which he brought with him. The greatest threat to the city came from the immediate west, and the rapidly expanding Duchy of Lithuania. In the mid-1300s, the pagan rulers of Lithuania extended their powers across southwestern Russian lands, including Kiev, as far south as the Black Sea, and threatened to push yet further east. In northeast Russia, the main power struggle of the 14th century was between two cities, Moscow and another city situated 175 kilometres to its northwest, named Tver. The geography of the two cities can partly explain the reason for their rise to power. The mixed forest zone in which they are located provided good conditions for Russian peasant farmers. Although the grasslands to the south were more fertile, they were controlled by nomad warriors and herdsmen. The mixed forests gave their population shelter from nomadic raids, but the climate was not as harsh as further north. As for why Moscow triumphed instead of Tver, this can probably best be explained by political events rather than just geography. The rivalry between the two cities began in 1304, on the death of Grand Prince Andrei, a son of Alexander Nevsky. Michael of Tver first appeared to be the most obvious successor, supported as he was by the Russian nobility and leaders of the church. More important still, Michael received the support of the ruling Khan, named Tokhta. Michael's contender to the throne was Yuri of Moscow, who put forward his claim despite an initial lack of support. According to the rules of succession, since Yuri's father, Daniel, the founder of the Moscow line of the dynasty, died in 1303 before inheriting the title of Grand Prince, therefore his descendants should have been permanently disqualified from succession. The claim of Yuri may have been dismissed entirely were it not for the political misjudgments of Michael. The first challenge of the new Grand Prince was a series of revolts in Novgorod, whose economic resources he needed. Each time, Michael had no choice but to use his troops from Tver to subdue the city, and even had to resort one time to cutting off their supply of grain in order to starve the stubborn Novgorodians into submission. Yuri exploited the situation, encouraging the city's resistance and helping boost its defences. He also refused Michael possession of the city of Periaslav, which traditionally belonged to the reigning Grand Prince. One serious mistake made by Michael Atver was to alienate the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. 
when the office of Metropolitan became vacant in 1305, the Patriarch of Constantinople rejected Michael's chosen candidate and instead selected Peter, an abbot from Galicia in southwestern Russia. From the Patriarch's point of view, the appointment was an important part of the strategy to keep the Russian Orthodox Church united in the face of a challenge from Lithuania, who were claiming for themselves the right to a new Metropolitan in their lands. Michael was aggrieved at the rejection of his candidate, and did everything in his power to express his resentment. But in the end, Peter retained his throne, and after his embittering experiences, was no friend to the House of Tver. In his fight for his position, he received support from Yuri, so setting up an alliance with the Danilevichi clan of Moscow. As for leaders of the Golden Horde, at first Michael enjoyed their support. When in 1313 he presented himself to the new Khan, Uzbek, he was regranted his patent. Uzbek, who reigned from 1313 to 1341, was one of the most able of rulers of the Golden Horde and oversaw the Khanate and its zenith. Michael remained at the Horde for two years, allowing his rival, Yuri, to take advantage of his absence and once more raise a revolt in Novgorod. Uzbek continued to support Michael and sent him back to Russia with Tatar forces to re-establish his authority, while Yuri was ordered to appear before the Khan. Prince Yuri of Moscow probably feared the worst as he approached the Tatar capital, but when he arrived he was able to not only win Uzbek's favour, but also the hand of the Khan's sister in marriage. Returning from the Horde to Russia with his wife and a contingent of Tatars led by the Mongol Kavdagi, Yuri waged war to remove Michael. The forces of Tver, however, won the ensuing battle. Yuri retreated to Novgorod, while Michael captured, among others, the sister of the Khan, Konchaka. To Michael's great embarrassment and misfortune, Konchaka, however, died mysteriously while in custody. At the Khan's court, Michael was accused of defying Uzbek's authority, withholding tribute and being responsible for the death of Uzbek's sister. In 1318, both Yuri and Michael were ordered to appear before the Khan for judgment. Michael was found guilty of the charges set forth and executed, and so against all odds, Yuri of Moscow had emerged victorious from the power struggle with his rival. Most crucial in this achievement was winning the support of the Golden Horde, although how exactly he achieved this is not clear. Somehow he must have convinced Khan Uzbek that he would be the more loyal agent of Russian lands. Yuri held the position of Grand Prince for four years, from 1318 to 1322, but was only able to put down revolts with repeated military assistance from the Horde. In 1322, Khan Uzbek reversed his previous policy and restored the throne of Vladimir to legitimate heir, according to the official rules of succession, Michael's son, Dmitri. Yuri protested and gathered together a large treasure, with which he set off to Sarai to present to the Khan but Dmitri's younger brother, Alexander, robbed him on his travels. With nothing to offer, Yuri cancelled his trip and took refuge in Novgorod. In 1325, Yuri plucked up the courage to visit the Khan, but retribution came from an unexpected quarter. Within the headquarters of the Horde, Dmitri of Tver rashly decided to murder Yuri in revenge for his father's earlier execution. That act also destroyed Dmitri. After a delay of nearly a year, Khan Uzbek ordered his execution. The bitter rivalry between Tver and Moscow continued, now of the younger brothers of deceased rulers, Ivan of Moscow and Alexander of Tver. 
At first, Alexander was granted the mandate of Grand Prince, but the decisive turn in the struggle for power of northeast Russia occurred in 1327. In that year, the inhabitants of Tver staged an uprising against a cousin of the Khan, Khan, who headed a Tatar force sent by Uzbek sent to that city. The purpose of Khan's mission is unclear, but may be as suggested by Charles Halperin in order to oversee conscription and collection of revenue. Whatever the reason for the revolt, the result was the massacre by the people of Tver of the Tatar forces. Uzbek would not be able to stand for such an act and was swift to wreak revenge. With the Khan's blessing, Ivan of Moscow led a punitive mission against Tver and a number of smaller towns and forced Alexander to flee to Peskov, from where he tried valiantly to regain his throne. And in 1339, Alexander was summoned to the Horde and executed. As a result, the city of Tver was ruined and its princes lost their claim to the office of Grand Prince of Vladimir. The city of Moscow emerged triumphant as the preeminent centre of power in north-east Russia. One outcome of the power struggle was that the norms of seniority and succession, which had been honoured by the Russian princes for centuries, had been overruled. They were replaced by the Khan's favour, which became therefore the exclusive basis for the selection of the position of Grand Prince. From now on, Uzbek and the successors, with rare exceptions, bestowed the position on the Deninovici, the Princes of Moscow. As always, I look forward to hearing from you, maybe on the Facebook page for the History of Europe Kibatos podcast, the blog www.historyeurope.net. You can write to me directly uh, at carl at historyeurope.net or to the Twitter account at historyeurope.kb. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join me next week for the second and final part of the Battle of Kurikova. Have a great week, and goodbye.